The following sermon is from Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Manhattan. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith. Head to FAPC.org and join our email list and be sure to subscribe to FAPC in New York City, our YouTube channel. And now we invite you to breathe deep and lean into the beauty of worship with Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Hear now the word of God from Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading today is from the gospel according to St. Matthew, from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's a joy to be with you today for the first time in quite a long time. And I am very grateful to Scott and the session and you as a congregation for inviting me to come and be with you. This happened a few years ago. I was at dinner one night in Northern California with a group of Presbyterian colleagues and friends from around the country. We were all involved in higher education in one way or the other, and we had known one another for years. At our table that night, something was said that troubled me. Uh, to be fair, I wasn't initially troubled so much as I was 
thrown off balance by what was said. Now, it's important for you to know that among the group of colleagues at our table were friends with whom I probably agree in substance on 99% of the theological and social and ethical and political issues we discussed. But during our conversation, something was said that just didn't feel right. And in the days and weeks after our dinner, this remark, like a tiny pebble in the shoe, worked its way into every step my soul tried to take. Here's what was said. A friend was praising a seminary student whom several people at the table knew. She was praising her for her devotion to justice. My friend said of this admirable young woman, she is really working hard for justice. She is angry about all the right things. Mm. Something about that remark just didn't feel right. In the days that followed, the longer this pebble worried my soul, the more I realized what troubled me. Now, the Bible sends mixed messages over whether anger is a virtue or a vice. In one place it says, be angry and sin not, as though there is an anger that is not only possible for faithful folks, but might just be justifiable. But when I hear the words of Jesus, and especially in that part of the Gospels we are considering today, which represents the very heart of his teachings, the Sermon on the Mount, when I hear Jesus, I am struck by the fact that Jesus sees anger as a sort of spiritual murder. For Jesus, anger is literally a deadly sin. This led me to rethink whether anger can be a good motivation for justice. There's a fascinating connection in many cultures between anger and madness. This is enshrined in modern British English. For the Brits, she is mad means she is doing something irrational or crazy. But if one says she is angry, we assume she is in possession of her faculties, but she feels something between frustration and rage. In many Asian cultures, however, to be angry means to manifest a sort of psychological imbalance. The madness of anger, according to such traditions, unbalances us and undercuts any sort of action it motivates. The more I think about our anger and what most of us call our state of mind, and the more I reflect on Jesus' teachings about anger, the more doubts I have about whether anger can be a good motivator when it comes to justice, or really much of anything. It may well be that many of the intractable conflicts we're trapped in today, when even old friends and family members find it impossible to have a reasonable, caring conversation about things that matter, this may be the result of our relying on anger 
often grounded in fear, to motivate us. Now, I'm not saying that anger has no role in our moral lives, nor that anger always leads to madness, and I am very hesitant to throw the baby of righteous indignation out with the bathwater of fury. You probably read the news report sometime back about the father of a sexually abused girl, a teenage athlete, whose team doctor took advantage of the trust placed in him. When the verdict of guilt was rendered in court, the dad leapt across chairs in the courtroom to physically assault the doctor. Now, I have to tell you that as a dad and a granddad of daughter and granddaughters, my initial response was, give that man a tire tool and leave him alone with that doctor for 10 minutes. What was it the ancient Greeks called this? A kind of wild justice. In such a situation, I would doubt the moral seriousness and sanity of a parent who didn't understand and sympathize with that father. But of course, of course, we also know the judge was morally serious and sane and right to have the father restrained. And this same father was also morally serious and sane and right to acknowledge his wrongdoing and apologize to the court. But maybe this story underscores just how unreliable anger is as an engine of motivation. In the ancient Christian church, one of our great early theologians called anger dragon's wine. Anger has a way of fueling so much destruction. So many of our lowest and cruelest impulses. I've seen people drunk on anger carried along in a sort of inebriated vapor, damaging others in ways they would never have imagined in a moment of calm reflection. We've all seen the truth of that ancient hermit, St. Anthony, who said, a time will come when people will go mad, and when they see someone who isn't mad, they will fall upon him and beat him, shouting, You must be insane, for you are not like us. These early teachers of Christian faith understood something that gets lost in the confusion of our culture, something I suspect we need to reclaim. Anger, stirred as it is by our fears and anxieties, clouds our minds. And in extremity, anger results in a kind of madness. Even, maybe especially, and though I hesitate to say so, maybe even righteous anger tends to narrow our vision, to thwart our moral imagination, and to cause us to divide humanity into the simplistic categories of the good and the evil and the godly and the ungodly. And anger 
Uh, we know this is true. Anger tends to calcify into hatred. And although anger may motivate us to get up and march, hatred inevitably sends us marching off in the wrong direction. There is a problem, however, with letting go of anger as a motivation, particularly for justice. We are left in a quandary. If not anger, if not righteous indignation, then what might be an adequate motivating force for justice? Well, as with so many things, a helpful perspective is waiting in biblical texts that many of us will know by heart. Most of us have heard the words of the prophet Micah quoted, What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Reading this text not long ago, I considered a possibility, something I had never contemplated before. It may be that this text is reminding us that in order to do justice, we must love mercy. And we must love mercy by walking humbly with God. I want to say that again. It may be this text is reminding us that in order to do justice, we must first love mercy. And we learn to love mercy by walking humbly with God. Maybe this text is not just a list of basic requirements for religious life. Maybe it shows us the relationship between these three essential elements of our humanity. If we want to be the human beings God created us to be, we allow our walk with God, which involves the consciousness that we all stumble and fall, that none of us is qualified to sit in a seat of judgment. And we allow this awareness not only to make us grateful for God's mercy toward us, but to create in us compassionate hearts toward others. And from these compassionate hearts, we are ready to pursue justice for others. Recently, a friend and I were talking on the phone about the hatred and division that seems to be multiplying in our society today. We were talking about this lust for revenge that sometimes disguises itself as justice. The self-righteousness and self-justification that are used as excuses to damn those who fail to meet our standards of righteousness or to conform to our social and political ideologies. We were observing the envy that stokes the fires of anger and the fears that drive it. We were mourning, in fact. We were mourning the fact that there is so little mercy in our society. My friend said to me, I think we both agree that we should be held accountable but what is the goal of accountability? Is it, is it only to punish? Or is there something more toward which we ought to strive? 
One of the most remarkable things about Jesus of Nazareth is the way he befriended sinners. It drove even the religious leaders of his own community nuts. Why? Was Jesus soft on sin? Or did he aim for some higher goal? Compassion makes a better motivation for justice than does anger because compassion starts with the conviction that none of us is righteous and all of us make terrible mistakes and God longs to forgive and restore us to our full humanity. Compassion does not aim toward damnation, but sets its sights on the redemption of the damaged and of those who do the damage and of those who damage the damagers long before they began to harm others. Few people have suffered more at the hands of systematic brutality than did the Soviet dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose experiences as a political prisoner gave birth to one of the most powerful chronicles to human suffering of all time, the Gulag Archipelago. Nor can Solzhenitsyn be dismissed as a starry-eyed idealist his view of humanity was forged in fire. But who can forget his compassionate words? If only it were so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the human heart. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? So how do we practice the redemption that honors justice? I have a very simple suggestion. And each week, by the way, I will have a very simple suggestion of practices and these are based upon Christian traditions of contemplation and prayer. First, find a place where you can sit quietly. And in that quiet place, remember the deep promise of the gospel. There is nothing and there is no one beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. In Christ, God plunged into our humanity and experience the whole range of human life and suffering and death. And God has claimed and reclaimed our humanity in the name of his love. Visualize, if you will, in your imagination, visualize what it is like to allow the love of God to flow over us and through us like a mighty rushing stream, washing us, cleansing us, energizing us with pure mercy and joy. And second, because we have the assurance that nothing and no one are beyond the reach of God's forgiveness, we have the courage to look at ourselves honestly and without reservation, recognizing where we have fallen short, where we have betrayed trust, where we have damaged others and we can allow ourselves to look at those many factors 
in our own lives which influenced us for good or for bad, we can feel the full power of God's love that seeks to restore us to our full humanity. And third, because we are conscious of the power of God's love in our lives, and because we can sense the depth of God's compassion toward us in our brokenness, we can invite into our imaginations the presence of those who have damaged us and others. We can pray that God will open the gates of compassion in our hearts so that we will know how to respond to them. Longing for their restoration to that full humanity we all long to share. The humanity we have seen in Jesus of Nazareth. This simple three-step practice in various forms has shaped Christians for centuries, helping us to learn to do justice with mercy and without madness. We are so excited to join Dr. Jenkins the next few weeks in his sermon series, Practices of Faith and Sanity. So friends, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. Amen.